Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The Literary Salon has been a tradition at LitFest, featuring three or more speakers with varying perspectives on a theme, along with audience participation. In the salon, a writer's pedigree, myth or reality, authors Steve Almond, Amanda Ray, Benjamin Whitmer, and Eleanor Brown address the questions everyone wonders but that rarely get spoken aloud. Is a writing career reliant on pedigree? Does success boil down to connections, MFA degrees, geography, and a spray of cash? Or can writers make it on diligence and talent alone? Listen in as they address the tough stuff, such as, does talent trump hard work? Hi, everyone. I'm Andrea Dupree. I know a lot of you, and I'm not just bragging. I think I really do know a lot of you. This is the Writer's Pedigree panel. I I don't think you can find a better pedigree than these four behind me. So... Unless you were looking. (laughs) But I'm bummed. All right. So starting with Steve, because he's a smarty pants, his most recent book, Against Football, One Fan's Reluctant Manifesto, was lauded by the New York Times Book Review, NPR, Harper's, and Bitch Magazine. <laughs> I, I pulled that out of the ether, but I thought that was cool. Uh, he's also the author of God... He was disgusted by each of those. Um, he's also the author of God Bless America, Candy Freak, My Life in Heavy Metal, and more. And you can hear him right now, if you choose, on the Dear Sugar podcast with Cheryl Strayed. So, I am a subscriber. You should be one, too. Um, Eleanor Brown, we're going alphabetically, is a New York Times bestseller and number one international bestselling author of the weird... In Quebec. In Quebecis. The Quebecis. Um, <clears throat> of the Weird Sisters, hailed by People Magazine as a delightful debut and creative and original by Library Journal, and I think Bitch Magazine loved it. Um, she's got a new novel, which uh, the title is under embargo, or actually hasn't been decided. I'm saying it's embargoed. It's coming out next year. So, woo! Woo! Amanda Ray's award-winning stories have appeared in Electric Literature's Recommended Reading, the Missouri Review, the Kenyon Review, The Sun, and elsewhere. She's been listed among the Distinguished Stories and Best American Short Stories. She's won a pushcart and a million other fellowships, residencies, and awards. Ms. Amanda Ray. And finally, Mr. Ben Whitmer, his second novel, Cry Father, was published in 2014 by Gallery Books um, in the U.S. and 2015 by a very fancy French name that I don't want to intimidate you all by pronouncing perfectly um, in France. His first novel, Pike, came out in 2010, and in 2012, he published Satan is Real, The Ballad of the Leuven Brothers, a memoir co-written, a.k.a. written by him, with country music legend Charlie Leuven, which was a New York Times notable book that year. So, this is a good panel. Thank you, guys. Okay, so so what we're going to do just to start off with is... Uh, talk about alienation and darkness and being lost and we'll then move into rejection and eventually all commit suicide in front of you Uh, but before we do that 
I just want to have everybody as the moderator person just uh, take a few minutes to talk about your pedigree, which is kind of a, just a fancy way for saying your experience or how you got to be where you are. Um, so, Ellen, do you mind if we just go down the row? Sorry. Is that all right? You yeah. can start. Uh, sh- sure. Is that on? Yeah, it is. No, when you turn it on, turn it, turn it on, and then it will be on. <laughs> um, okay, so my pedigree. Um, I and by that I mean uh, how you came to write, whether what educational interventions there might have been, blah blah blah. <laughs> So I would say that I'm relatively unpedigreed as a writer. I would say that my major uh, experience is that I have spent the majority of my life writing like a motherfucker, uh, to quote the beautiful Cheryl Strayed. Um, I do have a master's in literature that I got when I was becoming a classroom teacher um, and certainly learned a great deal, as you do when you are reading closely and critically and curiously. Um, and then uh, I have a lot of sort of workshop experience. So I took a workshop with uh, Steve Almond in Florida, um, a, a couple here at, at Lighthouse. But I would say that most of my pedigree just comes from butt in chair time. Oh, I have to go. Um, <laughs> I have an MA too um, from CU. And it, I don't think it did me any good, but um, they they paid me to do it, and then, uh, you know I got some time to write, so that was cool. And I think I mainly did it because I had a chip on my shoulder because I dropped out of high school, <laughs> and I figured, fuck it, yeah, I'm gonna show y'all I'm smart. <laughs> and it turns out that that's a really dumb idea if you want to show people you're smart. Getting an MA in creative writing slash literature from CU is probably not the way to do it. <laughs> I just so it doesn't really. I mean, I don't know what it's done for me, but um, you know, I don't even put it on my cover letters. I think I was kind of embarrassed when they found out about it and put it on the website. <laughs> Mine is not on the website. Oh man, <laughs> I know. <laughs> but that, that's pretty much my entire education. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have a. Oh wow, that's loud. I have an MFA from I guess it's I guess it would be considered like a good literary pedigree, though I got it somewhat accidentally. I was never really like craven about like, ooh, I want to get into this program or whatever, but I got an MFA and um I've done fellowships and stuff that I guess look good on a on a bio. <laughs> I do think my I do think my MFA helped me. Um but I am not like super proud of it. I don't sometimes it's on my bio, sometimes it isn't. It's a long time ago. I was like 23 when I went to the MFA program, and I had never written a story, and I didn't have any idea what I was doing. And in my notebook from those times, I had written several times in parentheses to find out for myself, what is point of view? Because everybody was talking about it. And I was like... It's it's really sad. My whole notebook is full of like famous authors who I was like, who the fuck is like Herman Melville? So it was. I was a little too young and inexperienced to go to an MFA program, but I I survived. And I feel like the main things that I gathered from it were, um, you know, it's sort of a tough skin because I got raked over the coals by like everyone else was from an Ivy League school and. 
they had definitely read Herman Melville, or at least they could pretend that they had really well. <laughs> and um, then also just rigor. There were people there who were so ambitious and, you know, were like much older than me and were trying to write like their second or third novel. And one guy wrote so much that he had to have a mobile chiropractor come to his house to unkink him like several times a week. And so um, I never... <laughs> Oh no! I, I, I had to help him. He could not walk. <laughs> he he had like a stack of books and then pillows on it, so he could put his hands up onto his keyboard, which was also had some contraptions, so that he could write for like you know twelve hour stretches with like bathroom breaks only. So anyway, seeing that was I think instructive in a way, so that I sort of know what I'm up against. It's not contagious that kind of ambition. But um, it was it was interesting to see, and I think that was the main takeaway from my MFA program. But yeah, that's far um, a big digression from the question. <laughs> it's going to be that kind of panel. Um, so uh, I was a journalist, a reporter for a number of years, and uh, worked at daily papers, and then uh, worked at a weekly when those still existed. Part of I don't know, does Westward still exist? Yes. Thank God. So it was part of that chain, uh, and they allowed you to write longer stories that had characters and scenes that were a little bit more like creative nonfiction. And my editor there uh, was a had gotten an MFA. This is in the mid-90s. Now I think there's, I don't know, 9,000 MFA programs. But even 20 years ago, they were a little bit more esoteric. I'd never heard of the degree. I didn't know that there was a place that you could go to study writing. Um, and I, you know, I'd, I wasn't a bumpkin. I mean, but it was really a little bit more esoteric. But I happened to just have this newspaper editor who was kind of my mentor, who was like, you know, if you're really interested, because I was sneaking off and running up to Florida International University and auditing classes and taking John Dufresne's free workshop that he gave just for community members because he's insane and a saint and an masochist. So every Friday he would gather for no money and literally just with members of the community, it would not dawn on me for many years how insanely generous this was. As, as somebody who was teaching full-time and writing full-time, John Dufresne would then also every Friday gather with just, I want to write people like me and read our crap and take it seriously. Um, and... So I was just trying to figure it out and kind of, you know, cobble it together. And then my editor was like, hey, you, dumb cough, there are these things called MFAs. You can actually go and there's like a little welfare state for artists. <laughs> just like for our corporations. There's also a welfare state for, for artists who are trying to start to take their work and themselves more seriously. So I applied to a whole bunch of schools and got into none of them and then spent another year writing stories that were slightly less awful and applied to like 25 programs and got into two. Uh, and one was in Fairbanks, Alaska. <clears throat> and my mom started sending me articles about like moose kills human in Fairbanks. And it was like an endless stream of the ways you could die in Fairbanks. Uh, and so I went to the other one. But it was literally that um, unresearched. But uh, and I and my actual experience in graduate school was 
fairly miserable. I mean, as a human being, I was pretty awful and lost and angry and fucked up, and my work wasn't especially good. But I think those years were pivotal because for me anyway, they were the... I needed it. Otherwise, I was never going to get out of journalism. You know, I needed to a, a community sort of competitive, neurotic, but pretty much determined to do the same thing and valuing writing as an endeavor to whatever insane degree to for me to say, okay, I I need to just take this seriously enough that I'm like I've I've committed to this bad habit. I have my fellow junkies. We're all like we're we're going to be crazy and make these terrible decisions together. Um, so I do have an MFA, but I think I will probably concur that it has not been the door opener professionally. That really the thing that is unique about literature, for the most part, is it really is a meritocracy. People who do serious work and. Um, and, and dedicate themselves to it will succeed not immediately but eventually and um, but that said I think having a degree has probably at least for me it was essential I would still have been sneaking off and doing it at half time if I hadn't had that little moratorium that, that couple of years so uh, I'll ask people to talk a little bit about um, you guys must get asked people who are still trying to figure out, well, how do I do it? How do I get to where you are? What do you tell people when they ask you that? Whether it's specifically, should I get an MFA or should I get, should I study writing? What do you say to them when you, in your travels? We, We can just, or somebody can just jump in. So I'm a very practical person. Um, so my view on MFAs is if that is kind of the hothouse environment that you need to give you the shove and, um, you know, kind of accelerate your learning process, then then go for it. But I think about something like the Lighthouse Book Project, which is, you know, an MFA without the MFA, and you come out of it with a book, um, and you've had some marketing feedback in that process too, which is, I don't know if that's something that happens in MFA programs, but I know, um, you know, I read, I read things sometimes that clearly were somebody's MFA thesis and I was like, I'm like, bless your heart, but that should have stayed your MFA thesis and, you know, I would happily read the next thing you write. So, um, so that's why I'm really interested in something like, like the book project, which is more practical. So, but my, my thought is kind of whatever it takes to encourage you and educate you, then, then that's the thing that, that you should do. Um, and if you have that spark yourself and you kind of don't need that then there's no there's no purpose adding those letters onto your name aren't necessarily going to do anything for you as a writer yeah i agree with that 100 <clears throat> percent. excuse me <laughs> it i mean i don't know whatever whatever works for anybody else is fine having an mfa or uh, even the ma program at cu did me as far as i can tell no good except for the fact that i got the time to write and somebody was paying me to do it so I could work less hours in my day job. <laughs> and that was really helpful. But beyond that, I don't think I learned anything. I mean, I was thinking about it. I was, I've been thinking about it all fucking day trying to figure out <laughs> yeah, what it is I'm supposed to talk about. And I was trying to think, like, you know, what did I learn from? Like all the times I, th- I think about in my life that have been, uh, you know, experiences that made me sort of want to be an artist, be a writer. I'm like, 
would I trade one night of doing LSD with my friends and walking into trees <laughs> for an MFA? No. <laughs> you know, would I trade you know a week in jail for an MFA? No. <laughs> I'm going to stick with the week in jail. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> That's like the least pedigree panel ever. <laughs> Which, what's my takeaway here? So, I just seeing people's notes like week in jail, yes. yes. MFA, no. And I'm being kind of serious. I mean, I'm being, I'm joking, but I mean, I was thinking about it. Like I said, all day, very hungover. Thank y'all for for last night's party. But, you know, the the way the things that I think have made me want to write and made me hopefully a better writer in some way are things that have enlarged my sympathies. You know, and. And the MA program, at least when I was in it, had the opposite effect. (laughs) Sort of reduced me and tightened me and hardened me and made me, um, I guess, less able to sort of reach out. So, at least for me, you know, everything else has been been a more positive experience. I would like to echo what she said, though. I think Lighthouse is a very, very different culture from what I found in MFAs. Or an MA. MA. I didn't do an MFA. I shut the fuck up about that. But... (laughs) You know, writers are are typically, you know, status anxious people, not in this room, but everywhere else, <laughs> are always very kind of status anxious. And I think you get them all together in an MFA program, you get a lot of weirdness that, at least for me, it was better not to be around. <laughs> and even when I was in the classes, I wasn't really around, you know. <laughs> so. Yeah, I can echo what you said about the MFA weirdness. It was definitely uh, sort of pot boiler of really anxious people with extreme personalities and so it was a super difficult couple of years in a way and Lighthouse offers you get the I'm not trying to be like an advertisement for Lighthouse up here but (laughs) you're all Lighthousers so it's okay Um, but that you get the feedback and the camaraderie and you can get deadlines here without quite such an intense social experience and um, you know there's more variety in the workshops here so you can have people of all ages and backgrounds as opposed to an MFA which can kind of feel like this rarefied six people who were chosen from you know the stack of however many and you it can kind of feel this weird inflation that I agree can be kind of tightening um, but the thing that I would that I tell people is um, something that I'm stealing from Karen Joy Fowler do you guys know her many years ago probably in my MFA program she um, spoke to a group of us and said that she in her she had a writing group that she worked with and out of all of those people she was the one who had who had published and continued publishing and writing books. And she said that she was neither the most talented nor the hardest worker in her writing group, but she was the one who just never quit. And I think persistence ultimately can be more useful than talent or hard work or any amount of schooling if you just don't give up, even though it can be really daunting and it can take like a beating in your writing group or when you submit things, just keep going. Your draft sucks, like pick it up and keep going. And that sort of almost insane <laughs> persistence is um, the most valuable thing, I think. Yeah, so one thing that I've noticed kind of in, in getting asked that question and also in talking with other writers is that there is this, um, it's, it's kind of an anti-educational uh, e- or pedigreed attitude. And I think this actually ar- arises, this is kind of an American attitude, it's sort of the Horatio Alger version is played out in, in writers. I don't need no classes or, you know, I, I want to, I, I should be able to do it on my own. Um, and I too had a very, uh, 
psychologically, emotionally unpleasant couple of years doing an MFA. But I'm also, and it, and it, it has not accrued to my benefit, I guess, in terms of getting an academic job, which I don't have. Um, but I do think that you have to do a self-inventory that is designed to f- figure out, am I serious about this? And if I am, what do I need to remain serious about it? What help do I need? And I think that maybe is part of um, the kind of anti-MFA uh, undercurrent that people have or anti-this or that program is the idea that you're admitting that you, can't, you need some help, you need the training wheels. But for me, I actually did... Uh, and I also think that a number of things were happening that I wasn't conscious of at the time. One was that I was aware that a lot of people were trying to do this, and that if I was going to um, uh, enjoy success, I was going to have to be quite serious about it because there were a lot of other people who were m- maybe more talented or um, s- spending more hours at the keyboard, and that I'd better, if I was going to be serious about it, I, w- I had better commit myself to it. And I think also. Aesthetics were being expressed, and I was, in a somewhat disastrous way, um, pushing back against the kinds of writing that I didn't appreciate, or the kinds of attitudes towards characters. And even it's a little bit what Ben was saying. My feeling was that I was finding books like Stoner, or Airships, or Jesus's Son, or any of the other books, Birds in America, the Lori Moore collection, that I probably wouldn't have found otherwise. And that they were, I was saying, oh my God, that's what a writer is. It's a jealous reader. You'd go, oh my God, I want to have that superhuman power to be able to be that compassionate in the face of persistent human misbehavior. Um, And that was something, oddly enough, that I was learning in my MFA program because I felt like in my own warped version of it, there were all these other people who didn't get it, man. Uh, and they did get it, and I was just an asshole. But I, <laughs> but I needed to believe, I needed to create that uh, version of like I'm the only one who gets it, that kind of sense of prophetic urgency, that was part of my engine, and the competition and doubt and an- competitive anxiety was also part of my engine. Now. I would not say it's a great part of the engine. It's pretty destructive to my mental health. But it is part of the reason that I emerged from that program like with a chip on my shoulder that was like, oh, I'll show you fuckers who didn't recognize my genius. And they didn't because I was writing awfully. But there was something about showing them that actually wound up being to my benefit. And I I also say that stuff about anti-MFA because I think there is this kind of undercurrent of skepticism about MFAs. It's kind of like, oh, yes, you need that help? You need that? You should just be able to do it yourself. You should be, you know, just tough it out. It's really the Hemingway attitude. Who needs a fucking school, man? I I learned in the school of hard knocks. Um, And in fact, there are plenty of people who do wonderful work and never set foot near a classroom. But it's also true that there's lots of, you know, many writers, Flannery O'Connor on down, who we deeply admire, who, for whom uh, some kind of educational, uh, you know, program was, you know, integral to their development as a writer. It's much more about doing a brutal self-inventory. What do I need 
to take this endeavor seriously, seriously enough that I'm going to continue to do it in the face of rejection, alienation, a lot of darkness, bewilderment. Right? And that requires people very individually figuring out what their program should be. For Ben, that program involves some time in jail <laughs> and some time doing LSD. But e- even though he says I didn't learn anything, I, I would bet that those couple of years that he spent doing that MFA were crucial to his writing the good work that he eventually wrote, even if it wasn't... You haven't read any of it. (laughs) But the point is, I mean, look, that's part of what you're doing in your apprenticeship. There's ten years of writing shit. That's just the way it goes. And so you're going to have to put in that time one way or the other. And, you know, eventually I think getting better is a matter of just being exhausted by your own incompetence, failure, (laughs) emotional cowardice, whatever it is. And, you know, if there are a couple of years that you're doing that intensively, well, then those are a couple of years that you cross off the thing. I I think, too, that I think that sometimes what happens with an MFA is that, you know, writing is this incredibly solitary activity. We're all plagued with imposter syndrome. You know, we're all sure that everybody else, you know, this is so easy for them and it's just so wonderful and it just, you know, flows out just like that. And so we're looking for ways. 12 hour guy. 12 hour guy. Right. Oh, don't even get me started on the precious. Like, (laughs) um, but that an MFA or some kind of degree would have confer some kind of legitimacy and give us a right to call ourselves a writer um, and, that, and that then it wouldn't be so scary and I know there is a lot of anxiety so I think you were talking about you know writers being kind of insecure and yet competitive at the same time I know there's anxiety and this feeling on the non-MFA side of the divide like if I just had that then things would be different, right? I would be taken more seriously as a writer or I would get I would get, you know, the book deal or I would know more people. And there may be something to that. So one of the things that I'm always curious about is um, as a networking opportunity. So you know there was this book or this article that came out a few years ago that was um, M- MFA or NYC. Yeah. Which was like the silliest, most reductive, offensive question ever posed. Like that these are the only two paths to becoming a writer. But I do wonder, so there's the sort of like Brooklyn cabal of writers, you know, and they all know each other and like they all know, you know, and so can you hook me up with your editor? Can you hook me up with your agent? And so if you're looking for some kind of professional connection there, I do wonder if there's some kind of benefit to being put to having, you know, being in an MFA program or, um, you know, or having having something more formalized like that. <laughs> I think. I mean, I, again, I don't have an MFA, so I really can't speak real well to this. I mean, CU, what they were doing was a lit program, so I took a lot of theory shit, which I actually love the theory stuff. <laughs> and I did come out with a good reading list, and that was the nice part. The part that I had, I guess, I was a little more skeptical about was the workshopping and whatnot. Because it was a lot of people like I was writing really terribly at the time too, and everybody else was too. And I kept coming away from this, going, "I really have nothing to give you. <laughs> like, I can tell you feedback all day, and I will because I have to because I'm fucking in this thing. But <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say anything that can help you as a writer. The dream student, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of just showed up with like I would show up to these classes with like everybody else's books except what I was supposed to be reading and that was good I got to know people and got to meet people but I think you kind of latched on to what an MFA is good for I mean to be honest I think an MFA is good for building contacts and I think 
You know, I was thinking about pedigrees coming in here, and I think, do pedigrees help you publish better? Fuck yeah. You know? If your parents work in publishing, guess what? You're going to get a good contract at James Fry. You know? <laughs> and they're going to market the shit out of your book. If you live in Brooklyn, are you going to have a leg up? Absolutely. You know, if you um, if you have an MFA from the University of Iowa, you're gonna you're gonna have a leg up. It's gonna help you out. But Will wait, they- but okay, wait. <laughs> I'm just gonna disagree with you agreeing with me. Okay. <laughs> because that was not my experience at all. Like I had zero connections. I knew nobody. You know, when I whenever I published anything, whether it would be with um, a literary journal or a newspaper or something, I just did it through a blind query. I got my agent through a blind query. You know, I got rejected. Um, almost a hundred times, you know, so maybe my path would have been a little bit faster if I, if I'd known somebody, but I still got there and I still ended up with a great publisher, you know, who put a lot of force behind me. So, um, that's what I'm saying. Like it may be helpful and for some people it may kind of speed things up, but I'm, I don't want anybody to walk away with the impression that that's necessary. See, now you're agreeing with me. Okay. Because <laughs> that, that was the second half of where I was going. Oh, I'm so sorry for interrupting you. <laughs> so, now, yes, you can do those things, but for me, it's like worrying about natural talent. You know, I don't know if I have any more talent than anybody else. There's no way of measuring that shit. All I know is that the only thing I can do is get up at 4.30 in the morning and write, you know, before I go to work. I don't really have any other tools, so I have no idea. There's no reason for me to sit around and think about what life would be like if I had an MFA any more than there's any reason for me to sit around and think if I had, you know, more natural talent than Steve Allman. It's, you know, those kind of thoughts do me no good. It's getting up and doing the work. And I think you can get there anyway. Do I think it makes it easier? Absolutely. I mean, I do think to say that it doesn't make it easier is to ignore sort of like a – to turn a blind spot on just the – the sort of class and social realities that do exist on the ground. Mm-hmm. If you have money to spend years and years and take and do an MFA and spend lots of time writing and your parents work in publishing, fuck yeah, you're going to do better. You know, that's life in the big city. But for me, that doesn't it doesn't do me any good to think about that. Um, even if I do think. I've, I made friends in my MFA program who have subsequently, you know, 15 years later, have, you know, been connections for me to whatever small extent that they have. Um, but I also, after I left my MFA program, I mean, you go into your program and you spend two years or however many, usually two years, and then after that's over, you are yourself again. And um, in my case, I was really excited about my MFA program, but I I didn't actually write a book while I was there, and I watched my friends selling their books, and I was like, oh, yay, we're writers, I'm a writer, this is awesome. And then it was over, and I was living in my car. And I was like, fuck. Like, why didn't... Where is I my used fancy to be a writer. <laughs> <laughs> so you still have to write the book, um, whether, you ha- whether you know a bunch of people and go to programs or whatever. You live in your car without one. Or maybe even with one. With several, you could still live in your car. That's the really bleak news. So, some more notes, like live in your car. Take LSD, live in your car. Go to jail. So I'll, I'll um, uh, agree and disagree a little bit as well. I don't think it's a good idea to go into any kind of educational opportunity thinking about, actually, frankly, any opportunity, thinking about um, trying to make connections with that kind of ulterior motive for the simple reason that writing truly, really and truly is a meritocracy. 
at a very fundamental level, there is no publisher who's going to be hornswoggled, at least in the world or of a literary journal or of a, a, a press, who's going to be hornswoggled into publishing a book um, because the, this person is really well connected and they came through the right. It's really like the mu- rubber does meet the road when you're sitting down and deciding to invest those resources in. You're not. I think the vast majority of editors are gonna are not going to publish. Uh, an inferior piece of work because the writer is connected in one way or another. Or to put it, to turn it around the other way, it really does not, the dream of every editor, all these fancy New York editors and agents who walk around in their fancy suits because they're not writers, all dream of finding Ben. They all dream of finding, and literally him. And then they're like, I found him. He's been in jail. He's done LSD. He's completely off the map of my world, and he can write like I went like the wind. I mean, that is what they all want to find is the slush pile, because that gives them a greater sense of part of why they're in the game, which is I found this talent that wasn't on anybody's map, that didn't attend that fancy party. I, I honestly believe that because I've talked to enough editors and, and been an editor of a literary magazine. That's the joy is finding somebody where it's purely the work that speaks to you. There's no resume attached. It just simply doesn't matter. So I would strongly urge people, the worst possible reason you could get an MFA was to go in search of connections and so forth. And I'll say one other thing about why the MFA program was useful for me, and it has to do with the fact that even though my writing was terrible, (laughs) here we go. He's blown away, mid-bullshit. Um, <laughs> critiquing other people's work and being forced. Are we okay? Because yeah. I don't think we can stop the rain. Which leads to the question, who will stop the rain? Um, but the most useful part of the MFA experience for me was not my own work, from which I learned nothing, but was having to or choosing to critique other writers who were at the same basic level I was and whose work, whose mistakes I could see really clearly. I was making the exact same mistakes, but because you have to believe in your own work and be kind of narcissistically blind to its many flaws, I couldn't see it in my own work, but I spent, I would write critiques that were longer sometimes than the stories that we were critiquing. (laughs) Purely because I was unconsciously I think I was trying to be a good student and you know sort of get the professor's favor but actually what was happening was I was developing a critical faculty and that was the most important thing that I got out of the MFA program was I was actually looking at a whole bunch of other people's work and having to tell them patiently and precisely and um, in, in real concretely why they were making bad decisions and what the nature of those bad decisions were. And that helped me immeasurably. And in fact, when I think about who wound up publishing work and continuing to write, it was almost inevitably the people who were taking that critical mission seriously. That is the fastest way you improve as a writer. It is not just from bashing your head against the keyboard and hoping fame will pop out. You know, that, that's just not, or, or even a great story. It's much more the internalization of, uh, of the kinds of 
insecure errors that writers make during their apprenticeship, and you can't see that in your own work, but it's totally obvious in the work of your peers. So for no other reason, and this applies no matter where you take a workshop, doesn't matter if it's Lighthouse, and in a certain way, the brutality of the MFA culture is um, can be to your benefit in the sense that that was one way that I was able to excel, was by even if I wasn't the best writer, I became one of the better critics. And that wound up, even though I didn't know it at the time, it would take several years to figure it out, that wound up being the most profound and important thing that I learned in the program was how to figure out how to explain the bad decisions that other writers were making. I wasn't making them, of course. My stuff was all fabulous, and all the editors rejecting them were idiots, but, right? Yeah, I think, for me, I think that I would have crumpled in that kind of environment. And so when I teach workshops, um, if I'm working with people who are in the midst of a rough draft, in the midst of writing a first draft, all we do is talk about what's working. Because um, I find that a lot, I work work with a lot of beginning writers, and they need a little confidence in, in themselves, right? So we all need a little humility, but we also need a little confidence in ourselves. So looking at your work and learning what you do really well, I think, can sort of inspire you to keep going. And it also is, for me, a teaching opportunity, you know, to say, okay, well, this is really interesting. Like this, di- you know, somebody says, well, I just love that dialogue. Okay, let's pull that apart and figure out why that dialogue is working. Um, now, when we get to a stage where revisions are involved, and I would say that that's, you know, really, then that's, that's a really useful thing. But I will say that there's also other ways to get that experience. So I was just talking to you guys earlier about, um, I used to review books for Publishers Weekly. And because I had to read that critically, and because I had to divorce my own opinion from it and look at it and say, does this book work? Right. Is this book going to be appealing to other people to its target market? That was a really helpful way for me to learn what worked and what didn't in writing. And and in that mission, because I review books as well, you have to put aside your sensibility. You have to actually judge the book based on what its artistic, moral, intellectual intentions are rather than, oh, I just don't like that kind of book, which is a kind of stinginess. You know, that, that doesn't, you're, you, that's not a good critical faculty. You're privileging your sensibility over what the author's intentions are, right? Okay, so the time has come for, I mean, we'll continue to pop off, but do you want to... Yeah, I just want to add one thing about um, the sort of reflexive, anti-academic, anti-MFA attitude that I find is kind of pervasive amongst writers. Um, I feel like there's kind of a privileged element to it because it's... The only way you can really have that attitude be against academics and MFA programs is if more people read books. And I think I saw a study recently that like three quarters of Americans only read one book or less last year. And most of those books were religious books, self-help books, or like how to make more money books. So I just think that we can't we can't call academia and MFA programs our enemies when they're creating readers. They're cranking out tons of readers, whether they ever publish a book or not. And they're, you know, putting books on, literary books on syllabi that people have to purchase. So, I, I think they're our friends, and we can't, we can, like, trash them if we want, but we kind of need them, right? So, uh, one other thing to, th- to just to think about that uh, I was thinking about when Ben was talking, really a lot of what we could say about sort of pedigree uh, is much more a question of w- how are you going to keep doing it? How do you keep doing it? And 
that everybody's going to find their own answer. But if you don't ask that question and you aren't quite persistent and serious about it, that's where you get into trouble. Because I think we can all agree, or at least certainly I feel, I will do anything before writing. I will throw any task of like the you know. Rosalie just had a giant disgusting poopy diaper and I'll find myself being like my two year old I'll find myself being like well that's a bad one but I better change it (laughs) and I better not rush that you know I will do anything I will throw anything in front of the doubt and anxiety that sitting in front of the keyboard for me produces so that means that knowing that I find it actually quite frightening and excruciating. I'm not one of these people who just gets into a flow and writes it all. I find those people horrifying and like I would like to kill them all. Um, for me, every moment of it is labored and anguished and difficult and I'll do anything to avoid it. So that means knowing that it's like a character who's in retreat from their own emotional life. Well, a good author has to force them up against what they're avoiding. And that's how I feel writing is. I have to force myself, which means I have to make it the first thing. And I have to think about the structure of my life in a way that the writing is the part that's crucial and essential and everything else becomes a variable. But that means that you have to think in a way that's very anti-artistic because we're all just artists and we're supposed to just let it flow and it's supposed to come when it comes. It's like bullshit. Nobody's asking for anybody in this tent to write a book, clearly, unless it's like, you know, how I found Jesus and made a ton of money and then slept with a celebrity. <laughs> My next memoir. <laughs> so you have to think like a boss. And that means you have to be very canny about saying, well, how am I going to make it sustainable for myself? And that means the self-inventory stretches to include what are my financial obligations? What are my emotional and psychological obligations? Do I have children? Do I have a partner? Do I have aging parents? Do I have uh, material needs? And be honest about what they are. If you don't want to live in a shitty apartment, you know, then you or drive a crappy car or live in your crappy car or live in your crappy car i mean really the way to think about it is okay well how is writing going to be since i know that i need to to be any good i'm going to have to uncouple financial uh expectation from artistic creation how do i then make room in my life knowing that i'm even averse to it or you know, frightened of it in certain ways. That's the central question, and then that's you know you construct a life. And all these guys, regardless of what they did educationally, were very persistent. You know, you went at 23, and you probably weren't really ready to get the most out of that educational experience. But she's still writing. So even if you had some fallow years, somehow you figured out a way to put writing at the center of your life, knowing that it's not usually going to make you a lot of money, and you can't undertake it. Eleanor didn't start writing The Weird Sisters to think, I'm going to make a fortune and be huge in Canada. (laughs) That's not why she did it. She (laughs) fell in love with the story and the characters, and, and the happy byproduct of that is it did well and found a readership. But that's not why you undertake 
writing. You have to figure out how to even give yourself a chance, and that means how do I make it sustainable? And maybe that involves lighthouse and workshops. Maybe it involves an MFA or an MA, or maybe it involves a week in jail. But whatever it is, you have to be brutal in doing a self-inventory, because otherwise those are the people who give up, who are not, who are not realistic about how difficult it is to, to make it a sustainable part of your life and how hard and disciplined you have to be in order to actually make that happen. Right. So now we want to take just general questions before the downpour, if people have them. Yeah. My big question is, is I'm contemplating an MFA. Um, I studied creative writing as an undergrad at CU Boulder, and then I was like, okay, I need to be more practical and just have a job and do like real things. Uh, but I miss that side, so I'm like, should I get an MFA? But I feel like maybe there's an age limit on it. I don't know. <laughs> There is. How old are you, ma'am? <laughs> Do people want to speak to that? No, there's no age limit. <laughs> Go nuts. <laughs> if it, if there's one thing I will say for MFAs and every other fucking program. If it can get you to stop working a day job long enough to really write, do it. I mean, any anything that can get you that. If you can deal meth, you know, anything you can do to get a break from the day job, fucking do it. More great notes. More incredibly useful advice. MFA. From ben. I'll say this: MFA before meth. How's that? <laughs> I believe that's what MFA stands for. No. Yeah, don't take a loan. That's stupid. Yeah, I'm actually joking. Yeah, I mean, for me, the time to write is really the. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but you know, I've been working since I was 18. There's always you've always got to find a way to to fit the writing in. That's always been my struggle. But if I mean, the MFA probably has other things to sell it too. But for me, the biggest one is I always tell people if you can do it and get in there and get two years, even if you have to take out a loan, you know, just to get the two years on the side. Then declare bankruptcy. Yeah. <laughs> no, but the, the thing about the, uh, with, I mean, it's easier to get a loan, you know, a decent interest loan for an MFA than it is to go into a bank and say, I want a decent loan so I can not work for two years and write my novel. <laughs> You're approved. That sounds like a guaranteed moneymaker. I've tried that shit. <laughs> well, I, I just want to say quickly, just real quick about age limits or whatever. Um, you know, that's a larger question that has to do with a, a kind of feeling of um, has, has am I, and, and we struggle with this in different ways, you know, is it too late? Has too much time gone by? It, you know, are there young, hungry kids who are, that's a, a broader pathology that kind of lives in the culture of this kind of everybody has to be a superstar gymnast by 16 or they're washed up. Um, and it's true that, uh, for instance, in the program that I went to, I was I was old. I was thirty, and there were a bunch of people who were you know you know considerably younger. But it really, it's an educational experience. If you know that you are ready to, it's, so that means what you get out is what you put in. That's just the simplest equation. 
And sometimes it's a great advantage to, for me, it was a great advantage to have worked for six or seven years because that's why I was writing those critiques and voraciously trying to read and figure out how to do it. Because I was like, I know exactly what's waiting for me if I don't get some traction. I go straight back to a newspaper, and that's how I keep score. So I had a certain kind of desperation that had to do with feeling a little older and a little bit more like I know what it's like to get sucked into, well, I'm just working and just trying to pay the bills and keep it all going. It can be a great attribute, in other words. But you have to do a real self-inventory and say, okay, are these two years, am I prepared to sort of give it my all? And even if it means that I'm... Might that the right job might not be waiting for me, or the same job, or that it even complicates my life because suddenly I'm much more serious about writing, but that means that I'm not going to have as comfortable a life economically or even emotionally. Since if you're doing it right, it's kind of going to screw you up. You're engaging with dark stuff oftentimes, and bewilderment, and loss, and rejection just all the, the, whole, the whole terrible law firm. Yep. Yeah, I do. You know, you've mentioned like MFA classes were not. Um, I just want to, I'm wondering why none of you mentioned uh, writers' columns because um, when I graduated from college, before most of you were born, um, you know, there were very few MFA programs and nobody, I, if you wanted to be a writer, you became a waitress. I mean, that was just, or you traveled or you, you know, did like Jack Kerouac. There, you know, and there were, you know, maybe Iowa and. I, was, I, I don't even remember anybody I knew who wanted to be a writer going to one of them. One guy did, actually. But um, as time went on... And his name was Franzen. <laughs> <laughs> um, as time went on, I began um, applying to places like Yaddo. And I went to a whole bunch of them. They were much easier to get into then than now, and you didn't have to pay $40 to apply. And I'm, there's where I met other writers, and you know there wasn't all this competitive stuff, you know, because you weren't allowed to like talk to anybody really about, you know, I mean, you, you did it informally, and that's how I not only met other writers who critiqued my work and became friends, but often we went off and did projects together. And I met one guy who took me to his tiny town in North Carolina, and that's where I lived for a year. So. It was a different kind of thing, and like I would suggest that you know, that's not such a bad idea. Yeah, so if that works for you, fantastic. The, the truth is that, that Eleanor made reference to that, that idea that it's sort of, well, you're kind of in New York, pounding the pavement and being part of the cocktail circuit, or you're doing an MFA. That's ridiculously limited. There's plenty of people. You, you know, if we lined up ten writers and said, well, what's your pedigree? Chances are, one of them would say, well, I just knew that I needed a concentrated amount of time. I knew that writing was lonely, and I needed to have some sense of connection and some peer group, and I found that by doing colonies or writing retreats or whatever. Fabulous. That's what worked for you. You know, that's kind of an ad hoc. Everybody's constructing a kind of ad hoc educational program for themselves. Yes, and then, yep. So that's a pretty good segue to my question because I've done the inventory and MFA is not the path, nor is leaving the job, which is a business that I own. Um, so what I'm looking for is exposure to successful writers whose writing I like, who might be willing and able to become a long-term mentor, and um, friends with people. <laughs> I, don't know, I feel like I'm setting myself up here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and friendships with people who are serious about their work, who are good readers. 
and who I can read for and be read by. So I have also looked at that. I know I'm I know I'm setting myself up here. What are some other what are some other practical tips? So I think that, I mean, that's the point, is that there are a million paths to it. Um, I will say that sort of in terms of finding, you know, we are lucky in that we live in this place and we have Lighthouse, right? So if you don't live in a geographic location that has Lighthouse or has Grub Street or has, you know, the loft and something like that, then I think it's more difficult. But you are blessed in that way that you do have that option. Um, you know, as far as sort of a long-term, a long-term mentorship, you know, if it depends on whether you want something financial or non-financial, you know what I mean? Like most, most of, or many of us do, you know, manuscript critiques or, or, you know, teach workshops or other, or other things like that. But, you know, we're struggling to, to make a living too. But as far as the peer group goes, I was thinking about this today that, um, social media is this incredible, incredible place for you to find a new writerly peer group. Um, and I actually met a lot of, the people that I consider my writerly cabal, um, like at, uh, you know, book festivals and, and writing festivals and things like that. And that was where we made, we made the connection. Um, so I kind of don't, and I feel like that's an option. If you're not interested in the book project or the MFA, you kind of start to form it yourself. Like you pull together these resources and you start to, to form it yourself. Yeah, anybody can start, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a tricky thing because if you're in the structure of a writing retreat or a book festival where it's other authors, you've already reached a certain point of like the startup is already underway. Uh, for you, sort of thinking of it as a business person who started your own business, well, now you're starting another sort of business and it's not going to produce a lot of profit for a long time or maybe ever. <laughs> but But what you're trying to figure out is how do I get somebody's guidance who knows more than me teach me stuff right Atlantic City how do you find that person who and that Eleanor's right there might be benevolent writers out there who will just say yes let me take you under my wing but it's more likely that that will be sort of ad hoc and if you want somebody to and the terms need to be quite clear if you want somebody to look at your work and critique it probably they'll say absolutely but here's my hourly rate and that's something different than wanting advice that, you know, for me, when I do manuscript consulting, sometimes people will say, well, here's what my interest is or my intention with this piece. And I'm like, that's not what we're up to here. I look at this work. I see what you're trying to do. I try to apprehend it. I tell you where I think you're doing great and where you need to do it better, very specifically. I don't mess with where it might end up. That's some other set of questions. And they're valid questions, but that's not the work that we're doing. It's, very, it's not impersonal. It's deeply personal, but it's just about the work. Mentorship is a, another, is a bigger ask. And, you know, it's, it's more fragile because most writers, I can say, are, you know, under a certain amount of pressure just with their student, their formal students, right, or, you know, with friends who are part of their writing group. But it's absolutely possible, and this is part of the sort of hidden benefit of an MFA, to find a cohort of writers. It's easier when you're in an MFA, when you're at Yado. But that's part of what you need to think about because that's a... Um, a, a little community, and if everybody is seriously engaging with one another's work, that's all it takes. It doesn't matter where they came from, and it can be hugely important because it's somebody who's expecting your work, uh, and expecting you to turn in work, and you, in turn, even more importantly, are having to critique their work 
And even though that seems really generous and it's not in your benefit, that's actually the thing that you're going to learn the most from, is being forced to assess their work. And that's, you've got to, as somebody who started a business, then now you've got another startup on your hands, right? I I just want to add to that, too. I was just thinking, too, kind of about creating your own courses. So again, going back to social media, a few months ago, I was really struggling and I went on um, iTunes and I downloaded every podcast I could find that Elizabeth Gilbert had been interviewed on. And I spent like two weeks listening to her talk about writing and creativity. And I um, I emerged just sort of feeling really, really differently. So I feel like you can kind of create a mentorship where the mentor isn't even involved with you, you know, you know, so, I mean, I can, I can read Danny Shapiro still writing and, you know, go and dig up interviews with her all over the place and come out of it feeling like I have learned something and like I have engaged with her, even if she has not engaged, you know, with me. And that's a little like stalking, but also a little bit like kind of creating your, your own relationship and technology gives us the opportunity to do that. And it's kind of part and parcel of the writing process, right? I mean, before technology, before social media, that's how writers worked, or at least, you know, I didn't become interested in writing because I wanted to be famous and make a lot of money. I, even I knew better. <laughs> and growing up without electricity and the sticks, I knew better than that shit. But, but it was going to the writers that I loved and, you know, finding ways to sort of have a conversation with them. You mentioned Flannery O'Connor. I mean, I've been talking to her for 20 years. She doesn't answer back, but... <laughs> but, you know, even like Mystery of Manners, her book of essays, you know, I'll spend... I read that once a year. And it's just to continue... I mean, she's a mentor whether or not she knows. She'd probably disown me. But <laughs> that's that sort of conversation is part of it. it is, in my opinion, it is what writing is, you know. That's a good way of thinking about it, that in some sense... That that's what your favorite writers or novelists, you know, or, or essays, whatever it is. That's what that's what that is. I read Stoner over and over again because I'm figuring out what I'm trying to do and what really matters. And what, it's partly inspiration, but it's also figure, trying to figure out with books you really love. How do they? What are they teaching me? What am I learning from that? And it's it's like it, it's, it's part of the novel. I mean, it's part of what makes a novel too. I mean, I just picked up for the other a couple of days ago. I picked up track of track of the cat. Nobody's read that. It's like a four hundred page book about a guy literally tracking a mountain lion. <laughs> it's a great fucking book, <laughs> but nobody will ever read it. It's published in the nineteen fifties. I went to it looking to rip it off for the book I'm writing. Because I'm writing a book where people are running around tracking each other. So I'm like, I'm going to steal the shit out of this book. And then I got in there and started reading it and realized Cormac McCarthy had already beat me to it. <laughs> and I was like walking into a house that I was looking to loot. And somebody had already came in and pulled out all the copper wiring and shit. I was like, you dick. <laughs> but I mean, that, that is the mentor. In my mind, that's the, that's the excitement. That's the thrill. I mean, the elite, the essay, um, the ecstasy of influence. I mean, to me, that's what keeps me going. But it also... I feel like I have this great canvas of mentors that never sort of stop. Sorry. I also just wanted to say kind of another thing that we're very lucky about is to have Tattered Cover here. Um, And it always breaks my heart when I go to an author reading and there aren't very many people there. Because even if it's not necessarily a book that you're very interested in, you should always buy it. Mm -hmm. Um, But 
just to learn. So I, I happened to meet a guy at a conference and he was doing a reading and he said, no one's going to come. Please come. Please come. So I went two days later. Um, he's a thriller and writer. I'm very grateful. <laughs> he's a thriller writer. He wrote with James Patterson. Like this is not in my wheelhouse at all, but it was fascinating. And he said so many interesting things kind of about writing in that, in that way. So opportunities like that, you know, when, um, uh, when Candy Freak came out, when did it come out? Okay, so like 1932-ish, yeah. Um, I remember reading it and totally falling in love. And I was like, I want Steve Allman to be part of my life. And so I followed his newsletter. So basically, I stalked you. Um, But, you know, like I I subscribed to his newsletter and I listened to all the music recommendations he made. And um, thank you for Taj Mahal, by the way, Sam Roberts Band. Um, And, uh, you know, and so then because I was subscribed to his newsletter and I was kind of paying attention to, to things that he was doing, I found out he was coming and teaching this workshop you know, in Florida, not far, not far away from me, and signed up for that instantly. So, sort of like that's another way to kind of, you know. So, I, we, he and I are in this mentor relationship that he is not part of. Um, <laughs> um, no idea. <laughs> but, but, but being able to kind of latch onto him and be like, this, this is what I want. Like, I want this kind of honesty. I want this kind of voice. I, how can I learn from him, and how can I find spaces to do that? And it's a little creepy, you know, and stalkery. No, but I mean, because, you know, it matters. And you do have admiration, and it's, but it's a deeply personal kind. It's not like, I really love your toothpaste smile. It's like, you're up to some human work that I'm curious about. But it's a great, I mean, it's a great compliment. And, you know, I didn't know that stuff, but it's like, that's what your dream is. That's why I was putting out the stupid newsletter and recommending, you know, because I was super excited about whatever art and so forth. So it's not like it's going to be an insult. You can always ask, is my point. It's a deep compliment when you say, I'm interested in what you're up to and how is it possible for us to, nobody's going to be like, no, kid, get out of here. Jonathan Franson will. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely, but there was a question back here. Yep. I just wanted to kind of build on what they were saying a little bit. I'm not sure how much of a question it is, but when she were talking about retreats and how they used to be sort of less money and you didn't have to pay for a lot of things. And, and right now we're sort of in this brave new world of the technology era and having the internet. And there's like online writing communities like She Writes and uh, Book Movement and all kinds of different things that we can kind of also be using as tools. Um, but on the question side of things, it's almost like, we haven't brought this up yet, but it's, it's funding, too, right? And in the real world, where if you're not paying for something, my experiences have been there's a lot of crazy people out there who want to be writers and, and, uh, and try and do workshop groups outside of safe spaces like this. You can get into some trouble. So, um, <laughs> so, I mean, there's a balance, right, where there's like this whole plethora of things online for us now that didn't exist back in the day that is free and like this amazing writing community, but there's also the other side of it where if you're not paying, if you're not putting some of your funding into an MFA or if you can't, that there's sort of a, a difficult conversation there too, right? When you're, I mean, all of you did MFA programs and if my... No, 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 I did not do an MFA. Um, Unless that stands for Masters yes. of Fucking Awesome, because I have that. The other side of that is that it is a bit of a luxury, right? It's almost a luxury item. And I'm, my teacher in college was like, the hard truth of it is, is that half the people in those programs are paying for the other half. And that's that was what he said to me, and, and just maybe want to speak a little bit about... 
Yeah, I just want to say that there, there, there aren't a lot of them, but there are some MFA programs that fully fund all of their participants, and that was the type that I went to. And I would, I would think it would be pretty unwise to go into debt for an MFA. So I think that would be, if you can afford one, like, <laughs> hooray for you. Or if they, if you can get in, I would, I mean, apply for the free ones only. I certainly didn't. I was not in the position of applying for those that charge. So there are options, but they're few and far between. So just in terms of, you know, weeding, yes, yes, there are crazy people, but there are crazy people in MFA programs, too, and it sounds like a large percentage, yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so you kind of, you have to self-select, right? I mean, this is the same thing. You're building what your input is. You're building what your community is. So I, um, back in the days of AOL dial-up, I was part of a writing group called you can't even say it out loud. It's only funny when you type it. It was Walden, but instead of the A, it was AOL. Like Walden, get it? And it was a group, and you know, we had there were some people who were awesome and um, good writers and interesting. You know, gave interesting feedback, and there were some people who were crazy. And um, you know, we tried to shunt out the crazy people, and that that didn't always, that didn't always work. Um, but so, but like that was a community that we forged, like we just kind of created, and then and then so it's possible to do. But you do just ha- kind of have to recognize that any situation you walk into. I've been in lighthouse workshops. There's some crazy people here too, you know. So like any situation you're going to walk into, there's going to be there's going to be a crazy element, right? And so and so online is not really different in that way, and you just have to be discerning about what it is that you want and what it is that you need. And I would say the same thing about going to an MFA. Like, what is it that you want? What is it that you need? What are you looking for out of this experience? And you ask that question no matter what you're, what you're looking to do. Yeah. And, and it's true that um, you're wise to say that an MFA or an MA or even Lighthouse, there is uh, the money that you pay is partly a filter, right? Um, you know, if you cast a broad net, uh, and social media, you don't, you know, that's you're not fishing. You're throwing out a net, and you're going to pull up lots of stuff, including some tires and some scary-looking prehistoric fish that you don't want to eat. Um, so just a brilliant metaphor. Let's just let's just be with it for a little while. Um, but I don't know that I would say that something is a luxury. I think this conversation is often charged with, again, this undercurrent of Horatio Alger, do it on your own. No, There's no shortcuts. Nobody gets to write a good piece of art because they were at the right party or they know the right. It's just not how it works. Ultimately, sooner or later, you're going to have to be at the keyboard making a whole bunch of really great decisions all in a row. And then you're going to have to re-edit those and get rid of the ones that weren't so great, but you thought they were. And what you're trying to do is figure out, how do I get that time at the keyboard? And then how do I have people around me who are going to help me compassionately and who I am expected to help? And the creation of that, that could happen, it could start through social media, but I think ultimately a serious writing group is almost always going to be a bunch of people who are just committed to the same thing. And it doesn't matter what it arises from, whether it's an MFA program or an MA or Lighthouse or whatever else, you have to find a bunch of people who you think get your work and are rigorous about it and for whom you are ready to look at and scrutinize their work with the same kind of integrity and you know, kind of brutal candor and compassion. There's no... There's no replacement for that. You can't get that. You can't just dial it up. You can't find it on Twitter. Those things are largely, I will say, kind of a distraction. Um, and they serve their own function, but it's not that sustained attention that actually creates art. 
Okay. There was a question back here, and then, yeah. So, uh, incredibly talented people, so thank you for sharing your experience with us. It feels like none of you had it easy, and it appears also that most of you lacked conviction in your work other than possibly Ben. <laughs> and, uh, Is that conviction or convictions? Guys, you know, how, how, how did you, you didn't have it easy, you lack conviction in your work, how did you keep going? That's a great question. Why are you I'll just say that there have been many times that I didn't keep going. I mean, I've had long periods of being just unable to face the page. Um, and then at some point, I some, somebody pissed me off, and I was like, I'm going to show you motherfuckers and I got back to it or something inspired me or I remembered what it was I wanted to write in the first place and sort of got back into it but I think you know we have this terror of being driven away from the page for a minute but like it happens sometimes you can't do it um, but I mean on the more practical side I I decided I was only going to work like part time and <laughs> so I I ate like peanut butter for years and hard boiled eggs it's awesome <laughs> I stole, like, ketchup packets. I mean, it was pathetic, but I didn't want to, like, have all of my energy sucked up. And that's, of course, not completely viable if you're older and have a family and you're thinking about retirement and stuff. But as a young person, I, like, really went for it um, and just chose to be completely poor for a few years, and that was great. But, um, I mean, in terms of your spirit, I don't know how you keep it going. What do you guys do? I don't think I... I didn't actually lack conviction in my work until I published a New York Times bestseller. Um, I think I was always, I always had something good enough that I knew there was something there. And I think for me, a lot of it was the drive to participate in the conversation. Because to me, literature is a conversation, right? And I would read a book and I, like, I would read Candy Freak and I would want to talk to Steve Almond, right? But Steve Almond was not available to me because he has a life. Um, and uh, shockingly, not much of a life. <laughs> um, and and so the only way that I could participate in that conversation was to was to reflect it back. You know, was to was to go and yeah, that's really interesting. What do I think about that? And to kind of write it out. So I think it was it was a combination of just sort of that desperate urge to want to be to want to be part of this conversation and a recognition that a lot of what I wrote sucked, but I could see it getting better or at least changing <laughs> and sucking in new ways. Um, and, and that was enough to kind of keep me going, was to see that I was making, that I was making progress. I got, if you don't mind, since I got called out there, <laughs> I actually, I, I hate everything I've written. I mean, honestly, like people ask me about Crowdfather, and I'm like, you don't have to fucking read that. You can come back and <laughs> read the next one. It'll be awesome. But I, I, I love writing. It's real easy for me. It's not hard at all. You know, if I, the more time I can get to write, the happier I am. And as long as I can keep it separate from everything else, I don't have any problems. You know what I mean? Like the book I'm working on now, I'm completely obsessed with. And everything I'm thinking about all the time, I'm obsessed with that. And it goes towards that conversation. That's all I'm trying to do. So I don't have to sit around and think. I just don't think about it. 
And I don't have to think about my pedigree or my talent or how well it's going to sell or any of that other shit because it's absolutely fucking irrelevant. <laughs> you know, if I when I'm writing, I, I don't know if it's any good. I don't care. It's going to be the best third novel I could write right now. I don't give a fuck. I mean, you know, is it terrible? No, that may be. But the fourth one would be the best fourth novel I could write. So, <laughs> if you yeah, if you kind of keep things completely simple in that regard, it makes it really easy. You know, you just have to be able to live on not very much <laughs> and work other jobs, and then you don't have to think about it. <laughs> so, okay. She's there. You are. Find her. Go. <laughs> David, did you have a question? Well, um, forgive me. This isn't exactly a question. It's just an idea, um, which is when we talk about pedigree, I think our real pedigree is all the stuff we make, we've made. And every kind of making, at least in my life, every kind of making, deep engagement with making something, teaches you something about how to make other things. And your real pedigree is this sort of stack of, I made one of these, and then I made one of these, and then I made one of these, and then I made one of these. That's your actual pedigree, as opposed to uh, your your uh, you know your resume or something like that. Um, and so one of the things that hasn't come up yet, but see, feels true to me, is um, we all know how to make things in other areas rather than writing, and those teach us things that make us unique as writers. Please discuss. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that's what I kind of said at the beginning, that, like, my pedigree is that I have spent an enormous amount of life, my life writing, and I've spent an enormous amount of my life writing things that failed for one reason or another. But the thing that made me a better writer was figuring out why they failed, 
and learning from them and kind of being willing to experiment with other things. So I've written romance, I've written thrillers, I've written YA. Like I've tried a whole bunch of things that were all really terrible, but I learned from them. And so that's that's the body of work. Like David is saying that I'm standing that I'm standing on ultimately, and that matters more um, than 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 my MA. Okay, nobody's a potter. Come on, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't do any artistic other things. I wish I did. I should start now. Thank you, David. <laughs> meth. That you yeah, made you made meth. a lot of meth. That's yeah. meth. <laughs> I mean, today. I mean, everything I'm doing all the time. That's that's what I'm talking about. I always say that. Uh, you know, writing a novel is like having a conversation with everything that you're thinking and everything you're taking in all the time and uh, for years, and that you can't share it. And even if you could, you wouldn't. So have a divorce lawyer on speed dial. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you just, you just that's sort of to me. That's what it is. You know, I'm, I'm everything I'm doing all the time. When I wrote Cry Father, I mean, I got a concealed carry permit so I could carry a gun because I thought it'd be fun, like the guys in the books, and roll my own cigarettes and wore cowboy boots, and went and did shit that no book, no middle aged white guy should be doing. <laughs> you know, for a long for two years, and it was wonderful. And this novel, I'm going out spending all my time. I'm spending He's all my time. like a fountain of good advice. I'm a, give great advice. You live in Colorado, smoke dope, and carry a gun. But, and Jesus Christ, why else would you live here? But uh, the pot. So, so, so for this novel, I'm, I'm hiking all the time, and I'm like, uh, you know, taking. I have a little stupid ass notebook in my back pocket, and this is my notebook of my own physical degeneration. So. <laughs> What I do is I walk around all the time and I walk too fast and then I write down how shitty I feel. <laughs> and that's a large part of the process. It's just stuff like that. But that's the fun. It's like the opposite of a Fitbit. Right. Exactly. <laughs> in, in every way. It's the direct opposite. But then, like, I'll get obsessed with, like, you know, Thomas Ligotti or something or Schopenhauer. I'll read that for six weeks and have all these notes. It's, everything comes in. It's wonderful. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. I just wanted to add that there, um, I did a, this might speak to what Vicky was saying about um, colonies as well as to what David is saying. And at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, where I spent a seven month period of, of awesome um, straining to write and mostly wandering cold beaches. Um, there were a lot of uh, visual artists there, and they were really instructive and inspiring to be around because their process is so different. And I remember sitting in one of their talks, and they, they, you know, they have this really complicated description of their work. And this one guy was like, I'm just really interested in squid. And like his whole body of work was just his obsession with squid and every angle of a squid you could paint and, you know, squid collages. And I mean, this has taken up years of his life. And it was sort of like gave me this feeling of like I have permission to just be like, I'm interested in squids, you know? I mean, I don't have to have any more reason than that. So there, there, I think there can be a lot of instructive things from being around visual artists and other types of artists as well. Sorry, I didn't want to call on someone that's your job. Yeah, cool it. <laughs> I'm being nice for now, but yeah. Um, it seems to me like other kinds of things that you do in the world, you could go to a class. You you take you go to law school and then you become a lawyer, and you go to med school and you become a doctor, and you go to an education program, you become a teacher. It doesn't seem like it works the same way in this world. So what experience made you feel like you could say I'm a writer in your life? That's a great question. Now we'll expect you guys to answer. 
I'm looking at you. I noticed. <laughs> um, okay, well, the short answer is writing, right? I mean, that's that's it. That's that's short, short and long. Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to say. The only thing that ever made me feel like I could call myself was a writer was writing. I mean, what, what you're pointing out is a lot of uh, kind of the undercurrent of this panel, which is when you get a medical degree, you become a doctor in the eyes of the world, and you're allowed to touch people's bodies. That's the whole reason to become a doctor, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> And when you become a lawyer, you suddenly can just rob people, but it's not even robbing them. It's, you're, their, you're their advocate, okay? But the truth is that, that the reason that there is such the, the kind of uncomfortable frisson around educational opportunities involving creative endeavor is that really, just because you have a degree doesn't mean that you suddenly feel like you are a writer or artist, and actually, what Amanda is saying is quite accurate. There are many days that I'm not a writer. I'm a chicken shit and a procrastinator and a decent but maybe like not even that great parent and uh, a, a really good teacher or a tired-out teacher who could have done better uh, or a shitty husband or a considerate husband. And I don't even go near the keyboard or do any serious, what I consider to be serious work without the ulterior motive of making money. And sometimes I'm just a podcaster. Um, there is no moment, I don't think, where a writer, most writers don't just say, well, I am a writer. They feel quite anxious about that. They feel like, well, I did some good work today, or I think it's good work, I don't know, in six months I'll know. And that's, that is the downside of any kind of artistic endeavor, is that you do not have it codified. It's not, you can't, uh, and the culture isn't going to look at you. And even if they do, as Eleanor can speak to, probably better than any of us, when that book comes out, then you immediately are fraught with the terror of, well, what's next? I mean, I got lucky and got that one, but now what's the next thing? I don't think most, I think part of the engine of creativity is doubt. And when you're lucky, you uh, give in to your obsessions. And as Ben is talking about, suddenly you, uh, everything that you are paying attention to, which is really what makes good art, whether it's pottery or whatever it is, you're paying attention to it, starts to get sort of sucked into the combine of whatever the novel is you're writing. I think about this book, Beautiful Ruins. That's like Jess Walter writing about everything that he has been thinking about and experiencing for 15 years. And it sort of gets sucked in. There's this incredibly powerful artistic centrifugal force that is sucking in everything, whether it's Schopenhauer or Hollywood or reality TV culture or Richard Burton, it all gets sucked in because he's got that binding pursuit, which is to sit at the keyboard paying very serious attention to an imagined world, or if it's not, even if it's nonfiction, it's a, a partly imagination, partly what we call memory, which is actually a deeply creative act. So uh, you're right. The idea of a pedigree in this case is very fraught and tenuous because the truth is there's no guarantee, even after you enjoy some kind of external success, that internally you will esteem what you've done and say, I'm now a writer and can relax. I don't think anybody feels that way. You, uh, Or if you do, I don't want to spend time with you. Uh, it's much more that you are giving, you're at the keyboard hoping the muse will show up 
and that you're paying attention to the world around you and giving in to the things that you're deeply obsessed with that matter to you deeply and trying to somehow through enough careful attention and imaginative intervention make them into art but that's not like I'm a lawyer now here's my medical certificate on the wall it's just not that kind of arrangement (laughs) I'm sorry I just fantasize about themselves suing themselves indefinitely Right. So I think that the other underlying issue is this issue of permission, right? Because this is, you know, as Elizabeth Gilbert says, like we're making jewelry for the insides of people's heads. Um, and and so you so I, we feel like we need permission. And because there's no external moment where we get permission to do this, we kind of have to continue to grant it to ourselves. And we have to grant it to ourselves every time we sit down to write. Like this is, you are allowed to do this. You can call yourself a writer because you are writing. Let's take one more question. Yeah, yeah, one more question. Okay. My favorite story tonight was <laughs> it's her birthday today. Happy birthday to her. Okay. So I noticed you told us where you didn't go, but you did not mention the school you went to, and neither did your partner. So the two people who got MFAs seem somewhat embarrassed that they got them, or <laughs> somehow ashamed that you have an MFA. So I want to know where you went and how you feel about that. Wow, just got called out. Thanks, Kate's mom. Um, I, I I wouldn't say I'm embarrassed of my MFA, but it's it's hard to say because it's very long. But it was the University of California at Irvine, and I really do avoid saying it because that's a mouthful. But because huh? then people are like, "What? You see what? Like it? It gets very complicated." Um, but I I don't think I'm ashamed of it. But um, I don't know. There's certain there's a certain hostility toward it, so I don't have a T-shirt that says it or anything. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think you're right that there is this sense of um, you know I needed I needed help I needed these training wheels and so forth. My reluctance to talk about the program is that it was such a disaster, and you know like none of the faculty would read my work. I I left in not in disgrace but in anguish, and you know I was playing out a real crazy fucked up psychodrama, and the world as it so often does played right along. Right. So that's part of my reluctance. I went to UC Greensboro, University of North Carolina, Greensboro. Why? Well, they offered me funding, and it wasn't Fairbanks, Alaska. Um, but it's almost, it's like people worrying a lot about where they're going to go to college. They have to do it. They're going to stress about it. They have to suppose that this path is going to be dramatically different than that path. But it matters, you know, it matters much more. Uh, who the other writers are, or even where you're, you know, where the the person who might be your mentor is in their life. I got into a very crazy, fucked up psychodrama with one of my teachers because I was going through a tough time and he was going through a terrible time in his life. In other circumstances, I think he might have been that mentor that I was desperate for, who was going to show me the way and so forth. But in a certain way, the fact that that didn't work out meant that I had to do some of that work myself or that I had that stubborn attitude of well people doubted me maybe I created those situations unconsciously so that I could have that as my fuel because that's part of my unconscious way of keeping myself at it anger and other people's doubt feeds my you know stubbornness 
but uh, I know you're concerned about, you know, Kate's, where is she going to go, this, that, or the other place. The truth is there's no guarantee once you get into one of these programs it's just now the work begins, and then you're done with that, and then the work begins again. And then you write a novel, and it's terrible, and then the work begins again. And then you write one, and it's pretty good, and it gets published, and then the work begins again. It's kind of unrelenting. And you never get that degree that says that where everybody says, and you say internally, I've, I've arrived. It's more like, God, hope I can get to the next station. Right? Yeah, but I do. I do feel too. Like some people use it as as cred. So I look at author bios sometimes, you know, and like I always have this moment. Like if it's like, you know, so and so received her MFA from the University of Iowa. Like I always clench a little bit, partially because I think there's that sort of, you know, like rarefied. Like you're not better than me just because you have an MFA from Iowa. And also partially because sometimes I, I'm like I fear what I'm in for. It's the same thing when a writer mentions which borough they're from in New York. I'm like, just say you're from New York. Nobody cares, you know. Um, but I think that people use it as armor, right? I think that actually my author bio on my book mentions my master's in literature. Why? I have no idea. I got it so I could teach seventh grade. Like, what does it have to do with writing, you know? But we do kind of use it as a shield when ultimately what matters is sitting down and doing the work. And I think for me... What, huh? Westchester University, Westchester, Pennsylvania. It was a phenomenal experience. Oh, I was just going to say that I think also there's kind of a time stamp on your MFA. I feel silly being like, I went to my MFA here because it's been so long ago and it's really not like present in my mind most of the time and the things that I learned there aren't really, um, don't have a lot of bearing on what I'm doing now. So these year, all these years later, it was a wonderful formative experience, but um, it seems sort of weird to, to plaster it on your bio or whatever. Um, all right, so uh, we got to stop only because we have to stop. Um, what's that? Rain delay. But we'll stick around. There are books which you should buy because Eleanor said buy them. I have, if people know of my little crazy DIY books, I have them. They're here. If people want to do a drug deal, come up with a drug deal. Um, but Tattered Cover has books, and we're happy to continue the conversation just but with more drinking and more informally. So thank and you guys. after a cigarette. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.